Pixplasm episode 92, Quorum by Michael Moorcock. This has been a long time coming. This is the fourth instalment in the uh, Michael Moorcock read-through. So that's from the Omnibus editions from the early 90s. There are 14 in total. The last one we covered was Hawkmoon. And so it comes to Quorum. And I have a special guest. But before I get into that, this is the first episode I've done which is after the Patreon launch. So I want to tell you a bit more about the Patreon at the end of the episode. You know, the sort of things we're offering and what you'll get for your pledge. Anyway, here we go. This episode, I'm continuing my reading of uh, Michael Moorcock's Chronicle of the Eternal Champion, uh, which is uh, specifically the 14-volume series that was published in the early 90s by Millennium. Previously, we covered Hawkmoon in Volume 3, and I was lucky enough to have the dice from the Grognard Trials to join me and discuss. And I'm thrilled that he's uh, back to chat with us again to talk about Volume 4. Welcome. Yes. How are you doing, How are you doing sir? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm starting to become like the companion of champions, aren't I? Reappearing in each uh, incarnation of the eternal champion. That's not bad to be, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what I wanted to ask you, first of all, because I think you've you've looked into Quorum not too, not too long ago anyway, and you've done a couple of eternal champion-themed episodes on your podcast. And also, I know you've got a copy of the Dark Side um, Quorum Supplement, which kind of divisive, uh, <laughs> but we might talk about that later. But do you want to talk about your experience uh, with Quorum to start with? Yeah, I I got these but back in the day when I first encountered these. I got them from the library, and I'm pretty sure that I didn't read them in sequence. The book that... Um, in reading it again strikes me as the Queen of Swords, which I have very vivid memories of because um, it, I think it's fair to say in Corum, the imagery is very operatic. It's, you know, very lurid and it makes a lasting impression. Um, you know, a, a desert of dried blood, you know, Margave's sunken ship rising up from the deep and crewed by the dead. Um, you know, and of course, there's the uh, corpulent Arioch of human slaves and uh, running through his pubic hair and him covered in boils and munching on the heads every so often. Um, those kind of things don't go away very easily, do they? <laughs> yeah, no, no, should they really? <laughs> yes. And I think um, you know, reading reading them again, um, and this is what's interesting in your project really of revisiting them with these millennium editions and reading them in sequence i think of the sequence this is the point isn't it where it becomes more explicit the idea of um, chaos and law being in conflict and i think i was really struck reading them again about how these are very clearly uh, politically allegorical Did, did you get that sense um, to a certain extent, I mean, w- one of the things I'll talk about later is the way that um, uh, that Corum speaks truth to power in a way that uh, that some of the earlier Eternal Champions haven't done, and is actually critical of both sides. Um, uh, obviously, that it says that one side is the enemy, but the other side is uh, not an enemy, but a, a, a very um, uh, a very vapid and and um, and idle 
ally yes. doesn't yeah. really it doesn't really advocate for the people it should be advocating for so if you want to take any any sort of political views from that i i think that also is uh, is not a bad uh, allegory for our current political landscape as well so yes yeah absolutely. not bad yeah because i think uh, it's it repeats quite often that chaos has the energy so you've always got to be mindful because it's got the commitment and drive and it's got the incentive uh, to disrupt whilst law is complacent and regulation and civic behavior is slow and takes some time to catch up and you can see that can't you play through with the climate change brexit uh, things that happen in Russia and uh, America, all that is it, it, still relevant, this eternal battle being played out. Um, I, I also like how uh, clearly in this one, he makes the point that um, the Mabden, the human race, are insignificant in face of the universe and the universe is indifferent to them and, you know, it's repeated in the, um, the, the prologue that, you know, the, all they can do is shake the fist at the at the universe, and it makes no difference because it doesn't care one way or another. And um, it, having the humans as such insignificant uh, allows the other characters to be more noble, to elevate them somehow. And um, so you get this in, the interplay between the gods and the agents of the gods, and how the gods are manipulating the um, the humans becomes more pronounced. I think. Yeah, I I think that's quite right. I mean, one of the things that uh, struck me about this uh, is uh, it was my first experience of the sense of scale of the multiverse, mm. and ev- even reading it out of sequence, it was like that. Obviously. Um, Previously, the you compare Hawkmoon to Corum. Hawkmoon is a a pulpy adventure. It does it does suggest you know a hierarchy of gods and, and supernatural things going on, but it is basically point A, point B, point C, um, good guys versus bad guys. Even though they're using magical technology, here you've kind of got this ever expanding outwards of of who is in charge, and then it's uh, sort of the you place people on a cosmic scale in terms of both importance and and uh, size and the their reach that they have. And I think the real kicker for me is that we talk about the gods of chaos and the, the gods of law, and even they, there are things older than them. Mm. Morkok's very explicit about that as well, which I think is that is particularly interesting because... I don't think that concept appears in many other places in any of Moorcock's writing. Mm. Uh, so uh, the the idea that there are even higher powers, there's the idea of the balance that keeps everything in check, uh, but that is a, a slightly different thing. And there's, there's cosmic, but the idea about um, powerful gods which are above law and chaos and simply free agents, and they've existed before then, that... Um, that I think is unusual for Moorcock. Yes, um, not out of place at all, but not something we draws attention to very often. Yeah, I, th- I think Corum is an interesting figure as well. As we go through this, we'll probably see examples of this. But as you say, he speaks truth to truth to power. But I think he's also a, a, an example of a romantic hero. He's more appealing than uh, Hawkmoon. Or Eric Rosa or Elric, yeah. 
he has more of a personality than he doesn't doesn't play the cipher as much. Um, it, I mean, and and what I, I've enjoyed because uh, I, I read it uh, fairly soon after we'd read uh, Hawk Moon is recognizing the parallels and seeing how. Uh, Corum deals with some of the same issues that Hawkmoon faces with a great deal more maturity and um, thoughtfulness. Yes, yeah, I I think that's a, a really well uh, well put. One of the one of the things that I've I've seen is the way that some people view Corum as a grumpy old man, uh, which I think is yeah that kind of fits. I mean, you imagine that it's like this willowy, flaxen-haired, alien, elfin type of character that is, of course, eternally young and beautiful, but maybe not. Maybe, actually, they're they're very long-lived and very vital, but at the same time, he does get to be old and scarred and, um, as a consequence, cynical, but also not taking any crap from anyone, which uh, I... I kind of really think that that is one of the, he has a lot of depth to him. And I think you're, you're right. He, one of the things that, uh, one of the things about him is that he has a very strong sense of what must be done and, uh, uh, a, an agency in him about, I'm actually going to fix this thing. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to, um, I'm going to go and, you know, take positive action to, uh, right, the uh, right, the wrongs that I see in the world that you kind of get from other characters, but uh, in a lot of cases, the Eternal Champion is pulled this way and that by the by the winds of fate, and Corum accepts that, but he doesn't take it lying down, which I, I think is uh, you know commendable as a kind of character we'd all like to play. Really, sort of. You know, I don't yes. care how big yeah. and how old a, a god you are. You know, I'm not taking any of your crap. So, um, I never noticed this before, but it is obvious that Corum Jehelen Irse is an anagram of uh, Jerry Cornelius, as you pointed that out in the notes. Is that actually right? Does that work? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Jeremiah uh, Cornelius. So, if you have the full spelling, it is uh, an anagram. Yeah. Um, ah. And that was that was the only connection I made because Jerry Cornelius for me uh, when I used to visit the library back in the day had a certain appeal but I just did not get it. Uh, I think we had a copy of the uh, Nature of the Catastrophe um, with its uh, drawings and uh, you know, great cover, but it just it, I just didn't understand. I did not get the connection, um, and then I'd seen somewhere that uh, Corum was a full name was a anagram of jerry cornelius and that's the first thing i thought oh so maybe the characters are connected in some way um, yeah I'm, i am looking forward to talking about jerry cornelius down the road right? it's going to be who knows how long that's going to be given how long <laughs> we've t- taken to sort of do this one but uh, but yeah it, it's i've got a couple of um the i've got the new nature of the catastrophe of course and um i've got uh, a couple of uh, of um bind ups which are interesting to talk about. But I think maybe we should talk about, I'd, I'd like to talk about the book itself in this particular edition. Um, and, you know, the date of publication was like 1971 to 1972, which places it after the early Elric stories. Um, but I think just before the publication of Elric of Malabone, which is it's interesting to me because I've, I've, I think... Elric of Malaboni is kind of, 
I've heard some criticism of that. That that's the point at which people, some people, start to criticise the Arik stories. They like the uh, the short stories and the earlier earlier um, entries, and then this is the point where um, some people start to turn away from Elric. And I think that I assume that at this stage. Moorcock was starting to think more on a on a cosmic scale anyway, and that's very much likely to influence the uh, the later things that he wrote in uh, in the other worlds. Yeah, I suppose with the appearance of Ariok and his uh, demise in this as well, and um, Corum acts as a, a sort of prequel to the Elric Elric and Malibone novel. It is interesting to see that um, Ariok exists as a, um, well, we assume it's the same entity, but it's all a reflection or a caricature of the other Ariok. That, that's possibly the most, um, uh, that's particularly interesting to me, that you get reflections, not only the Eternal Champion, but also other things, other things higher up on the cosmological scale. I think I do want to say something about Cornwall as well, because, um, I mean, this is, supposedly inspired by Cornwall. Uh, it's Moorcock says in his foreword about that this is a um, this is one of the few books that was inspired by actual myth and I think a holiday somewhere in Cornwall. Um, I, I have always associated um, uh, Corum particularly with the Cornish coast which is kind of it's strange and craggy it has uh, particularly odd flora um, you know it's heathland but it, if you go down the country lanes in uh, cornwall you there there you have things like uh, there on both sides they're wreathed with um, golden flowers and uh, it's it is very very obviously not like any other part of the uk and i can imagine you know also bright sunshine i can imagine having uh, um you know heroes charging along the uh, the sort of pearl colored sands uh, along the coastline on on wonderful horses and doing battle with uh, with other barbarians and then sort of with a backdrop of a uh, shell colored castle in the background Corum has uh, very much influenced my my mythic sense of cornwall so have you have you been down to st michael's mount because i've never been that far down uh, I I've been that far, but I've not actually made it made it across. Uh, I've been over to um, spent a few holidays around there, um, traveling. Now, the wonderful thing about Cornwall is you can get there on the sleeper, which is uh, if you enjoy sleeper trains, that's a great excursion. Yeah, yeah. I've I've uh, been to Tintagel, but not so far down. And um, the day we went to Tintagel, we were stood on the at the castle. And we saw a storm coming in over the sea, like a wall coming towards us. And it was like the Lords of Chaos descending upon us because as soon as it hit, um, my son was young then, about six years old. He was knocked off his feet by the force of the um, weather. So it was it was amazing. Well, that's, that's, a, a, that's a frightening place to have that happen and see that happen to your son. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, th- I think I think at least one of the times we went down to went to Tintagel, the whole place was was wreathed in in fog, sort of misty. So, and I was very acutely aware that I was actually standing on a lump of rock with sheer drops into the sea. Yes, somewhere yeah. around. I mean, of course, it, I'm not actually going to walk straight into the sea, but I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, this is standing on a standing on a rock, 
can't see where the rock stops. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. that's that, that, that looks like one or two saving throws I need to roll for that. <laughs> Definitely. Now, normally I run in a certain format, and the first thing I want to cover about the book of this particular edition is the cover, which is um, another Yoshitaka Amano cover, uh, and I think that it is. It really looks good. I don't think it's quite as good as the Hawk Moon one. Um, I do think that it is the weakest of all of the ones he did for this series, but it still looks spectacular. And it's, it's got a. Uh, it, I think one of the things is the way that the Corum is looking directly at the reader. That's pretty good. Um, but of course, I think you made the comment that. Um, it doesn't really look like Corum, apart from <laughs> apart from the scarlet robe. It's sort of, you know, he hasn't been maimed enough. I think that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not convinced that this is actually Corum. Um, I think it might be a repurposed drawing. Um, Very likely. I, yeah. Um, I think I, I need to correct myself as well, uh, Ralph. Last time, I I think I said that uh, Yoshitaka did concept drawings for Fighting Fantasy, but what I might, meant to say was Final Fantasy, the get through the game franchise. And I, and and I do I do like the images technically, but I just think you know where's the eye patch, where's the hand of quill, and yeah, I think the striking thing about Quorum is he's wearing armor made of shell. You know, yeah. a great opportunity for artists. Yeah, he, also he wears, what, two layers of chain? As well, that's a double layer of chain, whether it's brass, it's like brass on the outside and and uh, fine chain on the inside or something like that. So, yes. Yeah. Still, I think it looks lovely. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I think that uh, yeah. it, 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 uh, it really... It gives it a particular feel that is is different from the Grafton copy that I had. Um, so I think I had the copy that I had when I first read this was the mid eighties Grafton one, which has this character looking out into what is basically looks like the, the coast around Durdle Door and wearing this bright scarlet robe. And and that's all. I think that's also influenced my sort of idea about um, fantasy based around the Cornish coast with uh, with bright sunlight and uh, bright colours. So going back to where we were, um, that's the uh, we talked about. We talked about the covers. So I think. Have you got anything? At, else that you you mentioned you wanted to mention something uh, about the Rodney Matthews poster that on your on your bedroom wall yeah i think i uh, i told you last time i had a collection of uh, rodney matthews posters on my bedroom wall and uh, there was one with a quorum encountering the ragada kata in uh, kulakra with the weird little characters with feathered cloaks and the clawed clubs and I don't think it sets the tone of the novels at all, and it's quite a flat image, but I think it's good when you see Moorcock images that have a bit of action in them because very often they're quite still and static. But what I like about uh, Rodney Matthews, he always has some kind of dynamic image 
I particularly like Rodney Matthews for the uh, weird curly and pointy helmets, and that's kind of, I think that has influenced my view of the Eternal Champion. Is like they they have a particular fashion for headgear, but yes. uh, yeah, there's. Um, I think last time you talked about how good the um, the Hawkmoon, the Battle, and the Kamarka were looked. I've got one of um, Earl or Beck as well, which I really like. Right, so the next part I want to cover. Now we talked about the um, the artwork is just the forward. So one of the nice things about this this set of anthologies that Moorcock, I think, curated himself, and so he would have set the the order, is that he has written a forward uh, for each one. And this would have would have been a sort of him in the early nineties with a retrospective of his work over then the last. 30 years or so. I'm going to read it in full, I think. Dear reader, of all my fantasy stories, those about Coram Jail and Earsay, the Prince in the Scarlet Robe, are the only ones founded in a specific language and mythology. Indeed, his story might never have been recorded had it not been for an exceptionally wet Cornish August, when the most interesting book I had available was a Cornish English dictionary with no corresponding English Cornish section, which meant I had to go through the whole thing from A to Z and do it myself. To a great extent, the fruit of that exercise is this book, which draws heavily on Cornish, Cornwall and Cornish legend. It should not be hard to guess, for instance, that Moidle's Mount lies not a mile from Marazion, and that the Mabden interlopers are firmly bent on founding the barbarian settlements of Penzance and St. Ives. As a boy, I was especially fond of the historical fiction of Sir Arthur Quillacouch Q and his fellow Cornish resident Daphne du Maurier, while the West Country in general provided some of the most romantic settings for the stories of R.D. Blackmore, Maurice Baring, Geoffrey Farnell, Raphael Sabratini and all those others who made brigandry and piracy seem such attractive careers. But perhaps my main inspiration came from a later novelist and poet, Henry Teese. For me, his stories of Celtic and Dark Age Britain remain the very best of their kind and include such wonderful novels as The Golden Strangers and The Great Captains. He was the first author I ever read who made Arthur a living Celtic prince with human needs and ambitions. With Graves, the White Goddess, Mackenzie's Myths and Legends of the Celts, and Padraic Colum's The King of Ireland's Son, Treese's books are the greatest influence on these particular stories, which I dedicate here with great pleasure to my Cornish friends, especially David Hill, Bill Jekylls and Mike Foreman. There's something about that I I really liked and sort of particularly passionate about um, about uh, his experience in Cornwall to produce this, uh, and it seems I don't know it, it seems to me that it's um, the scale of the ideas in this um, have are, are I'm sure influenced partly by the legends. Um, I, he must have been a particularly interesting writing zone when he sort of considered writing Coram. Yeah, and um, it, the, the thought of him sat there with a dictionary uh, transcribing across uh, is, is quite appealing as well with the rain lashing against the window, <laughs> <laughs> trying to find his muse. As, uh, inspired by this, I actually read uh, uh, Padraig uh, Colum's King of Ireland's Son because I've not really heard of it before, uh, but Colum was a prolific uh, figure in the Irish literary revival 
a friend of James Joyce, and uh, was connected with people involved in the Easter Rising. But he's an American, but he was part of his mission was to capture some of the oral tales that he knew from Ireland and find audiences uh, in America. And this, this is a children's book, and you, you can see. Uh, traces of Moorcock's uh, travelogue style because the actual story, it, the overarching story is a prince being sent out by a king uh, across the land and it's a sequence of uh, fairy tales that are just connected by his visit to, from one place to another. So you can see how that format, that um, uh, concept, it was very appealing to uh, Moorcock. Shall we move on to the synopsis and actually talk yes. about the books? Um, yeah. The synopsis, uh, we've got three books, The Knight of Swords, The Queen of Swords, and The King of Swords. I'm going to just uh, dive into The Knight of Swords and, and summarise it briefly. As in previous episodes like this, I'm not going to go into quite such a deep synopsis as I might do in some of the other recordings. But you know, hopefully we'll give a very good flavour of what the novel is overall. Um so in the Knight of Swords, we're introduced to Coram as a member of the non-human Vedaka race, very much like the Eldrin and to Arakosa, um, yeah, and the best-known example of elves, the Malnabarnians. Likewise, humans in this world are known as the Mabden, and like their other versions in those other spheres, they, you know, they lack the sophistication of the Vedaka, but they're also in the ascendant in these stories. So the Vedaka have long ignored the Mabden, thinking them too primitive to be a threat. And this really becomes their undoing as Mabden tribes overrun their land of Bruin Vedaka from Bruin Mabden and slay all of the Vedaka, calling them Shefanau or, or demons, which is also a term that they apply to the Vedaka's ancient enemies, the Nadra. Uh, and then they also enslave and kill other tribes of Mabden, so they're not just fighting the um, alien races to their own. And at the head of this army is Earl Glanditha Kraya, the primary villain and the object of Coram's thirst for revenge. The Vedah have sensed a change in their world of 15 planes, uh, as over time their vision into the other planes has been diminishing. And this prompts Coram to leave the family castle and seek out other strongholds, which means he's not there when his family is slaughtered. Instead, he encounters the Mabden army, and he's captured, not without a fight, uh, and maimed by Glandith, losing his left hand and his right eye. But he escapes through a combination of his own plane shifting and assistance from the giant of La, who later turns out to be Lord Arkin of Law, who is, in this world a diminished god since the 15 planes have now fallen to chaos so with his new allies they take him to the margravine of alanglil in the country of rumanesh to the castle moidal uh, an untypical structure at the edge of the sea linked to the land by a causeway and uh, here after some initial distrust he settles down and becomes the companion and lover to the margravine relina whose husband died with his ship in in the waters near svi and fanla brule an island of the gorged god and this location is important because it references a sorcerer supposedly able to graft body parts for missing limbs and even heads um as told in a folktale of Mag and Mag and his companion Jar Cornelius, 
who had his head replaced with that of a crane, which is an amusing aside, not of much great consequence. Um, there is another interesting facet of the island as well, which is it suggested that a cult would bring children there for the island for sacrifice. And nothing more is made of this, but it's very similar to the legend surrounding the Mad God in the second Hawkwind story, The Mad God's Amulet. So moving on, when, when Glandith finally turns up at the castle and seeks to lay waste to it to get to Corum, it's Relina who summons her dead husband's ship to do battle with the barbarian pony tribes who stand before Glandith. And the cost of the undead aim is that Rowena joins the crew for eternity, so they all retain some semblance of life in her presence. And Corum comes along with them, hoping to, well, rescue Rowena, but also because they're going back to the home of the gorged god, actually the home of the sorcerer, Prince Shul Anjivan. Now Shul strikes a bargain with Corum, giving the latter the hand of Kul and the eye of Rin which are fragments of gods, uh, and they replace his missing iron hand. And in turn, he is given a mission to steal the heart of Ariok, the Knight of Swords, weakest in this 15 planes of the Chaos Gods, who are collectively known as the Sword Rulers. And this is you know, a classic Moorcock, where the hero travels through strange realms, encounters companions for a time, and then kills them, or otherwise causes their death. And this particular curse Corum bears is the hand and eye, which have these powers to gaze into the netherworld and beckon whatever is there to come to this plane and do battle for Corum, which inevitably leads to them claiming the souls of the slain as prizes to replace themselves in the cave. And sometimes the wrong person gets killed, you know, not to mention that the hand acts on its own from time to time and throttles a few relatively innocent people for good measure. But still, Corum makes his way north into the Chaos Realms. He shrugs off assassins and oubliettes. He rides kites through walls of fire, so on and so forth. And eventually he gets to Eriok's castle and claims the heart like a good little pawn of law. And Eriok is slain and banished from the first five planes, and Arkan of Law becomes ascendant. And Shul, as it turns out, is nothing more than a vassal of Eriok's, and living on Eriok's borrowed power, is not the science sorcerer he claims to be. And Shul actually meets his end in the Garden of Carnivorous Plants, in a scene that's very reminiscent of the end of the Pleasure Gardens of Philippe Sagittarius. Uh, and so, at the end, the five, first five planes have been restored to law, and peace returns to Lumination. Corum can rest in Castle Mordel for a brief period. Uh, so the Queen of Swords, which happened to be my favourite of the three, and the second book, The Human Scale of the Conflict, moves from region to national with the barbarian tribes of King Lyre de Brode and Earl Glandeth lay siege to the centre of civilization at the capital Halwag Nanvak. Coram and his companions learn of this through a newcomer, Jera O'Connell, who's extraordinarily well clued up on the nature of the gods, the planes, and the eternal champion. He identifies himself as an incarnation of the champion to the champions. Through his flying cat, Whiskers, which is a daft name for a flying cat, <laughs> who spies on the distant enemies in King Leia's court, where it witnesses the manifestation of the Mabdun's primitive gods, the dog 
and the horned bear. The company learned that the forces of chaos are on the march. Though Jambarg, Queen of Swords, is forbidden by the balance from entering the five planes, she's certainly manipulating events and she's vowed to end Quorum for slaying her brother. They travel to the capital and witness infighting between those who serve law and those of chaos. And after a conference with Arkrin, they're tasked with travelling to Jambarg's realm of five planes to see the last bastion of law there, the city in the pyramid. The inhabitants should have something that will aid the side of good in the coming war. The middle portion of this book is another quest through impossible shifting lands, and to be honest, Moorcock is kind of phoning it in here. There are a few fun encounters. There's a corrosive river of blood, and first there's the roll of the hand and eye, which get even more use this time round. So Coram goes through a sequence of enemies by using the hand to conjure the last dead thing and use it against the current threat and then repeat and repeat grinding through all the bad guys until suddenly you realize that the monsters are still fighting the last bad guy and so there's no one in the cave to deal with the chaos legion that's turned up and about that legion it's basically a group of former mabden twisted by chaos and having forgotten their identities a scene which is reproduced in the Warhound and the world's pain. Of course, they eventually reach the city in the Pyramid, apparently one of the Vadra Sky Cities. This part also reminds me of the second Hawkmoon book, not least because the city is an advanced race in the degenerate world, willing to help the eternal champion, but in need of the champion's aid first in retrieving certain essential ingredients they need to secure the city. This inevitably leads to the usual race against time and the climatic battle between good and evil. On the mortal scale, King Lardybrode's forces assault the city, allied with the demonic minions of the dog and bear. Seeing victory slipping away, Jean-Barg then defies the balance and manifests in the realm which proves to be her undoing, as the cosmic balance asserts itself. The parting shot is a terse exchange between Arkrin and Coram, as the latter rightly surmises that he's been used as a pawn by Arkrin, showing that law is just as apt at manipulation. Unlike Hawkmoon, who just whined about this sort of thing, Coram calls Arkrin out to his face, which is very satisfying to read. And this ends the second book, where once again, Coram may return to home and some kind of peace for a while. And then in The King of Swords, uh, which is the third and final book, the adventure begins with, once again, the protagonist at peace. The setting has very much the same air as Castle Brass at the beginning of the third Hawkmoon book, The Sword of the Dawn, where the companions live a fairly quiet existence. This doesn't last long as the land is suddenly in the grip of a malaise which causes friends and family to, well, hate and murder one another. Coram, Jariakana and Melina are not immune to this effect either. And this is 
a particularly memorable and atmospheric start where the heroic fantasy takes on some really gothic elements, such as Rowena physically brawling with her surgeons. The chaos outside is reflected by the collapse into savagery inside, and things come to a head with Vadakh from the city in the pyramid landing near the castle, uh, where Coram is forced to slay them because they are afflicted with this uh, rage. And Coram and Jari then take action, first preparing a potion which will protect them, and then travelling to the capital to get advice from Lord Arkin. And Arkin tells him to go to Tanalorn, and in retort, Coram tells Arkin that he is weak and needs to give clearer instructions, which I think is quite reasonable. Whilst this is going on, Whiskers the Flying Cat once again pairs off from the group and spies on the bad guys, this time Glandith and his pet sorcerer in Broa Nadrach. The Nadrach sorcerer is the source of this acrimonious spell, and he also summons a demon who is none other than Irkun, Elric's brother. Spoilers! Their final multiplayer quest is to Mablo's realm, which, since he's the strongest of the sword rulers, is the most unstable. And from there, they witness Duke Tyr's castle built of blood. Then uh, they fall into limbo, and Coram loses contact with Relina and then Jerry for a time. And he finds himself in actual Cornwall, uh, almost coming face to face with his equivalent in this time. It's a, another version of him who, though human, looks a lot like Coram and has a missing eye and an artificial hand. Now, fortunately, Jari appears to avoid them coming into contact, which would have had apparently dire consequences for reality. Jari is pretty much leading Coram by the nose at this point, and he introduces him to the Lady Jane Pantalion, who had dealings with elves and knowledge of other planes. You know, fr from here, Moorcock inserts another character called Bolohag, which is a kind of dwarvish sorcerer with a time-traveling boat that takes Coram and Jari conveniently elsewhere lining them up for an encounter with the Vanishing Tower and a conjunction of the original supergroup of Corum, Elric, and Ericosa. Elric emerges apparently fleeing Theleb Karna and his Pantangian archenemy, and the two find Ericosa not long after that, and the three band together to find the tower, which apparently contains artifacts that they will need in their respective actions on their home planes. And before they get to the action bits, there's a predictable bit of verbal sparring where they basically compare notes and complain about their miserable lot. A bit like the Monty Python Yorkshireman's better sketch, I think. And when I first read this, I took it more seriously. But, uh, you know, these days it, it's kind of comical. To cut a story short, though, they engage the sorcerer in the Vanishing Tower together, kill him, take his stuff. They all get then transported through Limbo, once more using the Rune Staff of all things. Emerging in the Sighing Desert, uh, they destroy Theleb Karna's engine of war before they move on to find Tunnelorn. Ericosa is persuaded not to go to this version of Tunnelorn, even though he really wants to be with Ayalinda for mm, reasons. Um, you know, if I was playing Ericosa, I would start to call bullshit because Jerry is clearly making it up as he goes along. Um, you know, you could meet, you can stay apart, you can meet outdoors with two other champions, but you must stay at least two meters apart and keep your armor on, you know, that sort of thing. But anyway, Coram ends up in Tanalon in front of a massive statue, which turns out to be cool, the original pre-law and pre-chaos, pre-balance 
godlike cosmic entity who has been locked up for fighting his brother Rin, in which he tore out his brother's eye and lost a hand in the process. So Coram strikes a bargain with Cool to give his hand back in exchange for sticking it to Mabalode, who, by the way, has not appeared for the whole trilogy yet. Um, and this this is also where Jerry shows himself at his most frustrating. Uh, and then he barely redeems himself because Coram basically says to Jerry, what should I do? Should I give him my power to Cool so that cool will fight chaos for me rescue the woman i love and you know restore peace to the land and that sounds like a pretty good deal and jari refuses to answer saying well it's your choice and then immediately after quorum says to cool okay you can have your hand back if you do this jari's then shouting you fool what were you thinking that was the wrong thing to do and and cool rips off the hand and plucks out the eye and then follows them off to Mabalode's castle where he kills all the Dukes of Hell and Mabalode before doing the same to the Lords of Law. Uh, Coram's a bit put out with him slaying Arkin, but Cool basically says, if you want to worship something, why not consider your own best qualities? You know, he's basically promoting a humanist agenda. There are only a few pages left, and there's still no confrontation with Landith the Cry as well. Um, but... In the last few parts of the story, uh, tidying up loose ends, Coram and co. sail to Broen the Drach, find the sorcerer who's succumbed to his own spell and dismembered himself, with only seconds to live, but he's been usefully hanging on until they got there to debrief them. Uh, and then in burst, Glandith, big sword fight, the end. Jolly good. And that is the end of the saga, with Coram settling down once more with Relina making an artificial hand for himself. There are no more gods, though. Jerry travels again with the intent of finding another world where there are still gods, and Coram tells him as they part, do not despair entirely of this world, Jari. New gods can always be created. What do I meant by that? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's the whole thing. So one of the things I really liked was the callbacks to the other books. And what I'd like to go through is, is like talk about some of the scenes that I think are particularly interesting and why they're interesting here. So Derek, would you like to go first? Uh, you've got a couple that you've written down that you, you particularly liked. Yeah. One of the scenes uh, I particularly like is the, the first scene. I mean, I think I, last time I chose the early scene in Hawkmoon where uh, Hawkmoon is having the duel inserted into his skull. And in a similar scene at uh, the start of this where Coram is maimed um, uh, at the start, it, to me it, it's a really um, gothic scene. You know, it recalls uh, Mario Brava's uh, Bloody Sunday, that uh, just intense and horrific scene where uh, Glandeth is uh, inflicting agony and pain on him. And it just draws into sharp focus the idea that the Vadra have not experienced this before. You know, it's like that sense that into the ecosystem have come the Mabdan. Um, and the Vadra are totally unprepared for it. This is the first time that Coram and his race have experienced any sense of violence. You know, before he set off, he was composing a symphony that had taken him seven years, and he just dis discarded it just to leave the uh, leave the castle. And here he is now being tortured uh, by Glendith. 
it, it also this scene brings in the idea of the vision so he, he starts to see through the uh, five planes because that's one of the skills that the Vadra have that become exhausted in this scene and and I think as well this is it you know, you, you, you know that it ends with a humanist message, but I also think that th- this is a human a human um, aspect of the eternal champion. I think we sim- empathise with uh, Coram because of this experience that he has early on, and he is a character with humility, because even though he, you know th- this event creates... In, a cynic within him. He's also very, his response to this violence against him and his family is very human. And I think it sets up not only the revenge, but also aspects of Coram's uh, personality. And what I admire as well is that the revenge drives it. But as you say, it's kind of disregarded because his personal agenda is eclipsed by his role in sorting out the cosmology. Um, so I think this this early scene is so key for setting it up um, and it, it's so memorable um, and it, it feels so visceral, I think, as well. So that's a great call. And I think actually the those early parts where he's striking out on his own and the description of the forests and the, the sense of... Um, you know, areas that have previously not been touched by uh, by anyone passing through in this him as a lone warrior and then the uh, the the sharp contrast of the violence of this scene and what the madmen are generally doing with what has gone before um, that I, I feel was also very powerful yes yeah yeah, yeah it's um really I remember how much this drew me in. And, and just sort of the, the horror seeing this happen to the protagonist this early on. Uh, I'm not sure I'd read many things like it beforehand. I'm- yeah, but I think I, I think I think here though, because in Hawkman, supernatural, isn't it? His experience, whereas this is very physical, isn't it? Yeah, and and it, it is it is clear that it is entirely explained in human terms, motivated in human terms, and that they are using terms to to label him other. You know, they call him chef now, they call him a demon. They think that they they are right to treat him in such an abominable way. They've justified it, although they also treat other Mabden races because they argue that they are lovers of the, the chef now. They 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 um allies of them uh, so yes you're quite right it, it is actually about awful things awful people can justify doing to other people as well mm. um, but at the same time you're quite right it reflects on Coram's own humanity one of the bits i wanted to mention that i mentioned throughout the the bits of the synopsis are the number of times um we get similar scenes um both in in uh both in narrative structure and also actually in the way they're presented to other bits from the uh, the Eternal Champion series. So the example I had was Shul. Shul dies at the... Um, he, he basically keeps a garden of dangerous carnivorous plants. And at the end, when he has lost all his power and he's fleeing from... Uh, 
from Corum, uh, he, he ends up running into his garden and getting eaten by carnivorous plants. That scene, I think, is uh, is sort of it echoes exactly what happens towards the end of the 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 last story in the von Beck bind up, the Pleasure Gardens of Philip Sagittarius, which was actually, I think, it's it, it's a from late fifties or early sixties. It's one of one of Moorcock's earlier pieces of writing. Um, and then there are other things like the, the Island of the Gorged God being similar to the the, the Mad God's um, stronghold. I really appreciate a lot of that. And I think there's, um, as I mentioned, there's callbacks to some of the things that happen in Hawkmoon. There's the scenes very much reminiscent of uh, the scene in the first uh, Von Beck novel, the, the Warhound and the World's Pain, where they encounter the this weird demon city and they have to fight people with misshapen faces who've fallen to chaos. Now, the Warhound and the World's Pain, of course, is a later novel. And so, it's the other way around, really, that, that that is a callback to one of these. But in, I, I, th- I particularly like the way that um, these are intentionally repeated. I think they're intentionally repeated to show a, a repeating motif uh, throughout the cosmos. And um, uh, but it's it's kind of also Easter eggs for the the, the attentive reader, the person who's read everything. They're going to say, oh, I, "I know what that's referring to." In, in that area, that that section where um, the chariots of chaos, um, what struck me reading that this time is not just the callbacks to um, previous encounters and previous occurrences in the uh, sequence, but how uh, gaming as uh, Lent heavily on that imagery that is depicted in that that scene with the hybrid creatures. Yeah, um, that you know, it, you know, you don't have to look very far. From, uh, Citadel miniatures and uh, Warhammer and uh, that world um, of the Lords of Chaos. Um, and, and there is a, a particular scene that it's a bit of a throwaway moment, really, um, where. The uh, the king without a country identifies one of the hybrids, a horse creature with, with lolloping uh, through him. He, he identifies him that uh, he was previously uh, the fiance of his daughter, an attractive figure, and he's been so corrupted, chaos, identifiable, and he kind of disregards uh, that intervention. And it's just a little moment that isn't really dwelt upon but i think that's uh that, that as you say there's lots of little elements of little parallels but also little areas of uh more more stylistic flourish um comes about but it's then just uh, just left <laughs> to, to hang I, I i think that a lot of that was really satisfying i i guess it depends what sort of attitude you you read it with because you might justifiably say that um, it looks like Moorcock is just recycling his stuff. Uh, I think that's actually a feature rather than a bug. Uh, And um, I did very much enjoy that section. Um, Having previously seen uh, seen exactly the same thing happen. Well, there's, there's a suggestion that in the first book, the misshapen thing that, um, that Von Beck faces down is actually another version of himself, possibly one of Jerry Cornelius's mates. I'm not sure where I read that. Um, uh, so I think we can expect yeah. more of that going forward. Um, 
Yeah. I think the last thing I want to mention for scenes that I liked is every scene where Coram called out Arkin, um, and he does it several times. And he, he sort of he uh, he doesn't do it very much in the first book, but by the second book, he's really not impressed with that, the way that Arkin has manipulated things uh, and manipulated um, Coram into doing the bidding of law. And by the third one, he complains bitterly to Arkin that uh, you know you're you're not a particularly strong god. It's clear that you're manipulating us, and um, you're, you're too weak to act on your own. So I'm going to act for you, but and I'm going to think of less of you. And I thought that that, as you said earlier, um, this is very much a sort of a, a, a mature uh, eternal champion character. Not only do they have um, not only do they have humanity, they also have wisdom. And they also have uh, have an air that they are prepared to to speak to uh, their superiors in a way that you know they're not afraid of their superiors and they're not afraid to call pe- call people out and call out injustice. And I feel that that's much stronger in Corum than than in other versions. Um, now, all, all of the Eternal Champions get lippy from time to time, but I think that, that Corrin is particularly entertaining and uh, and very satisfying. It's exactly what I would imagine a, a player character to do. Yeah, you're right, because I think um, it, you know, th- this uh, characterization of the uh, Eternal Champion, they, they tend to be more, um, more concerned with the doom and the ennui of a situation, whereas Coram is more uh, attentive to taking action and uh, doing something about it, I think, certainly. I, I, I want to also mention, um, before we move on, uh, Jarrah O'Connell. O'Connell. I want to call him O'Connell. Uh, Jarrah O'Connell, because he is every uh, player character I've ever played, I'm afraid. Um, you know, he is the bard of the uh, group with his uh, flamboyant clothes and his uh, wing cat. Um, probably slightly irritating to uh, everybody else. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he is, he is every player character I have ever played. So apologies. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I think there's a lot to like about that character, but also um, he's playing a particular role where he, he knows he clearly knows more than he's letting on and he's hiding things from the other group so uh that would kind of uh if that was your character yes that would drive me up the wall uh yeah. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean he is there for exposition of the uh, the role of the eternal champion but what i like as well is that quorum often turns around to him and says don't remind me that i'm part of this eternal champion thing it's too much for me to comprehend you know i'm I'm having enough dealing with this the thought that i'm going to appear again across different planes and i think i think that's uh, that's nicely done as well yeah i know that that it goes back to what i said earlier about the way he speaks to arkin as well it's like quorum doesn't mess around um Yeah. yeah really uh really great stuff so yes i i um I, I have some misgivings about Jari in the way that he is kind of an irritating, know-it-all companion who's deliberately holding things back. But on the other hand, he's also a really good character. So, yeah, I'll give him a pass. That's fair enough. Okay. 
One one other thing I wanted to mention here in in things we're talking about scenes. This I think is the first volume we have in this with explicit crossovers between different worlds. Um, Eric Elric and Ericos are obviously a per- turn up, but I think Jaria Kamel also turns up in. In fact, what was he? I can't remember if he was in Hawkmoon or, or one of the other um, uh, one of the others. He certainly turns up in other places, uh, which is to yeah. be expected. I think. I think he might turn up in the uh, later Hawkmoon ones in uh, the Count Brass ones. That is probably it because uh, the the problem with reading these now and then I I, f- I forget which order they come in because I didn't read them in this order, and so then mm-hmm. I. Uh, looking for certain people to turn up and they don't and it's a bit confusing but but i don't know how much more we'll have of that i think uh if we're done with scenes i want to just talk about the sequence now um and my argument here is i've made some notes here um We've, the first four volumes, they kind of set a baseline for the general structure of the multiverse. So Von Meck starts with a historical perspective, which is kind of touching at the edges of fantasy. Um, it has some occult significance. Then as we go to the Eternal Champion, that also explores the nature of the individual. Um, but it also gives uh, you know, a crucial clue about the, the role of the Eternal Champion, in particular the, the dragon and the sword and, and um, the phoenix in obsidian and the, the relationship with swords. Uh, and the Eternal Champion sets the precedent for a single champion plus companions. But then Hawkmoon, in the third volume, expands this by kind of talking about the ambitions of humans, weird science, you know, the influence of the supernatural and superstructure of reality. Uh, but the at this stage, then, Corum kind of finishes, brings that to its logical conclusion, which is it, it establishes the, the overall battle between law and chaos. It makes that explicit, and it makes a hierarchy of gods uh, visible to the reader. Um yeah, you know, this is. I would argue that this is possibly the most objective view of the Eternal Champion that we have so far in what the Eternal Champion is in relationship to the multiverse. And yet, as you pointed out, it's also the version of the multi. It's also the version of the Eternal Champion that readily rejects this most of all and just doesn't want to know, which I think is quite reasonable. Yeah, mm. uh, I mean, looking forward. There are a number of other stories about the Eternal Champion. Um, I don't think any of them offer anything more than this, cosmologically speaking. I think what we'll get is more repetition and more interesting characters and um, more interesting situations. But I think here, this kind of lays out the cosmology. Um, I don't know. What, I don't know if you have any opinions on that. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, that that moment when uh, Jerry O'Connell uh, appears that is the most underlying section in uh, my book uh, from when I first read it when I, it was a review copy way back when because it does really set it out and it's the it's the fir- first time it does that and then the actual um, encounters with the gods and the different manifestations of the nobility of the gods does set out the uh, cosmo- cosmology in a 
much clearer way, more coherent way than we encounter in some of the other other novels. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I think that it's doing, because it's setting out the cosmology, it also does this gods of all sizes thing um, where we have um, people with certain amounts of power and they are clearly in a supernatural pecking order. And you have um, some characters like Shul who are actually vassals of more powerful chaos lords. Um, uh, you know, I think Duke Tyr, I've made a note, is a vassal of Mabalone with his, his castle made entirely of blood. Um, the other thing I noted was that the gods are created and destroyed. Um, and I made this note, and now I'm not exactly sure what I meant, but I, I, I wrote by this isn't so much a mechanism of faith as superstition and natural order. Um, you know, sort of, Shul is regarded as the gorged god by other people, but really he's a he's a sorcerer, um, albeit one who gets power from Ariok. So, so Shul is kind of he's just another person who has obtained power from somewhere else, but he's regarded in a superstitious light by outsiders, and certainly by other Mabden, and therefore he has attained godhood in some ways. Um, I think I think. Uh, the conclusion I've got here is that we've kind of got this cosmic corporate ladder of gods, and you know they've all got their own individual power, and they all they've all carved out their own niche in the multiverse, and um, they also have different amounts of power in the different worlds. Because as I think Elric remarks, that um, Ariok is no more powerful uh, than the other gods in in other realms. Or sorry, Ziambarg and Mabalod are no more powerful than Ariok uh, in in uh, the world he comes from. And yet here, there's a clear hierarchy there. Yeah, and I think uh, in addition to that, they're all acutely aware of their um, role in that pecking order, and. Um, often uh, as part of the exposition of who they are, describe where they land in that uh, hierarchy, just so that it's very clear to the, the protagonists uh, who they're dealing with. Yeah, I'm gonna, it's something, this is something I'm going to look out for more as I read, uh, as I reread uh, the next subsequent books, particularly the fantasy ones, um, So and, and see if there's any more information. But I think... Now it's kind of what Morcock has established is there is a, a whole multiverse of supernatural characters. Some at some points are more important than others, uh, but we will have repetition at all levels of reality going forward. I think there's one other thing I wanted to talk about, which is dangerous journeys. I wrote this down. <laughs> um, and And really it's kind of... I I got this feeling, you know, Moorcock does these dangerous journeys from place to place, particularly forcing the Eternal Champion to go to different places and um, and perform certain tasks. But it's particularly egregious in this sequence where basically he says, oh, yeah, now, now you've got to go to this another place to, to look for the city of the pyramids. So like, there's this plain of blood and this river of corrosive milk that you've got to go down. And then there's a waterfall. And then you'll get into this this sort of this pit and, and a whole load of horse-headed people. And then you just go left past the past the flying vampire bat. And it's... it's um, 
it's like he, he does that more and more. And then uh, in the third book, it's it's even more just um, uh, more just Moorcock writing random stuff happens to this character. They are entirely passive, and then they find themselves in a completely different world. Yeah, and I think the third book really goes off the rails, doesn't it? And we yeah. discussed that a little bit about the uh, Hawkmoon, um, some of the sequences in there where they just, you know, they they're just wild, and um, I, I suppose you lose some of your uh, your patience with uh, with some of the exotic imagery that's being thrown at you. Some like like we were saying earlier, the, the Queen of the Swords, I think it's. I enjoy that bit, you know, with a on this uh, disc-like plane with the um, the, the desert of uh, dried blood and uh, yeah. encountering the that, that that's fine. But when you get to some of the the, the wackier stuff, and I think uh, you've made the point, Ralph, that if you were encountering that as player characters in uh, a, a role-playing game, you would kind of be rolling your eyes at the GM and just thinking, right, what what's next? Come on. Yeah. yeah, your patience with it would wear thin. Well, now, now here's a confession to my embarrassment. That's how I, I ran a lot of games 20 years ago, where it's just we chuck more and more stupid stuff at the characters and have them uh, you know, travel to weird places with uh, a massive amounts of deaths so and ex machina. I'd like to make the point, though, that um, you know, Tim Arthur did exactly the same thing, and I played in his games, and he, he was he was also very uh, very keen on doing that. We all, we all played uh, actually an Eternal Champion game together, uh, which was four different players, each of us making up an Eternal Champion and running a game for the other three in that world. And it was kind of let's just make a whole load of stuff up and leave the characters by the nose for no readily apparent reason. And uh, I think the response in every case was predictable. That says, "Why are we doing this?" Yes, <laughs> and and some of the um, some of the newer OSR games. So, well, the new games, but they've got OSR sensibilities. They make a feature of it. So, I don't even know the game Troika, um, uh, which yeah, uh, good, good game. Yeah, if, and uh, if you like that sort of thing, yeah, and and that is really based on that. Mode, isn't it? Mode of um, creating worlds, creating experiences, and even uh, the supplements randomize it to create uh, weird exotic elements that you can compose an adventure f- from. I think that's what some of the uh, some of the OSR titles really shine like that. And if you if you want to use those as as play elements, then that's. Uh, that is, it's certainly a mode of play that I prefer than, say, learning a, a single massive map and trying to fit everything in a in a 3D space and make sense of everything, because in that case, it's much like I don't have much tolerance for massive world building and exposition, I don't have a lot of tolerance for being forced to learn a complete fantasy game world in order to play in it effectively, so the I think this that's another extreme of it. I guess is that well, there's nothing to learn because we're just going to generate it randomly. That yeah. I can see also irritating a completely different sort of player. So yeah. uh, I think you need, yeah. another another gaming technique 
and that strikes me would be useful in the in a Moorcock world is to use the uh, 13th age montage scene um, which isn't actually part of the core rules but it's um, part, one of its supplements suggests this where you've got a journey is actually hand it over to the players and the player um, respond, creates an obstacle which then passes on to the next player who has to overcome that obstacle and passes it on to the next player and it doesn't work mechanically it's a, it's a story thing but it passes around the table um, from the GM to the player to player to player uh, to reflect the different things that you encounter on the way and how those are overcome by the group. Um, and I, I've used that quite a few times in uh, one shots and that can create weird and wonderful situations that are quite fun and uh, reflective of uh, the experiences in uh, the Eternal Champions, really. Yeah. Well, that sounds fantastic. I mean, I, I, I hear a lot of praise being directed to 13th Age. I don't actually have a copy, um, but things like that, yeah, great to inject that into what is otherwise a fairly traditional game. And uh, But um, which, which supplement is that? Do you know? Um, I don't off the top of my head. I can send it so you can put it in the show notes. Right, that would be, that would be good because I think it's... Um, uh, 13 Age, I know, gets a lot of love uh, from uh, from a lot of people who are sort of keen on D&D but want something that has a bit of narrative stuff in it as well. And also it's it's got its escalation die and things like that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So it, yeah, it, it allows you to have... Um, Heroic features, it, it escalates not only with the escalation dice, also it escalates with the levels as well. So um, uh, people like it because the maths work as well. They've put a lot of work into uh, getting the maths right of it. Um, so if you're really into that kind of thing, um, people admire it for that. So it's got a good, strong basis in um, story, but it also um, it, it scales well. I mean, talking about scale... So, I mean, using that term, it does sound like it might be suitable for something like an Eternal Champion type game as well. Um, I, I don't know how well it sort of, it could scale up to a, a you know, different levels of reality. I guess if you wanted to sort of start with killing humans and then work your way up to gods, that's, that might be the way, D&D might be the way you do it. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting. I've got one more thing I want to talk about, which is Quorum the RPG, because I know that you've got a copy, I've got a copy, and it seems to be a kind of slightly divisive uh, supplement. That cover, for a start, it's not to everyone, not everyone's cup of tea in terms of the way it's representing Quorum. I think it, it does some things well. I think I like the hand of Quill and how it looks like it is um, part of him. It's it's kind of reaching, the tendrils reaching into his veins. Yes. But it, again, you know, this is a, it's quite a static image and, um, you know, he hasn't got a vest on. And I think that's the difficulty that people have with it, isn't it? <laughs> well, well it's, it, it can be quite warm in Cornwall, but I suppose I'll take the point. Oh, <laughs> More of a sort of surfing quorum or something like that, really, isn't he? Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. I think it's. I mean, I I do quite like it in the way it's it's kind of looking through the. Um, 
it looks like a whole load of uh, you know verdigris or sort of corroded copper or something like that. And yes, yeah. It's formed this this frame around it. I I thought that was that was quite interesting. It does yeah. also typical for DTP of the time use the um, papyrus font, which is kind of a little bit dates it slightly. Yeah, but, uh, uh, yeah, and and inside there's quite a lot of. Uh, Use of kerning um, effects just to squeeze an extra box in. So that was a DTP yeah. uh, sensibility of the time, wasn't it? Yeah. So what what do you think about the actual um, the, the supplement inside? I think there's a lot of interesting – there's a lot in there, for one thing. Um, I'm not sure how accurate it is to the uh, – accurate it is to the, the saga. Um, it's got a lot of uses, obviously, a lot of the same names. Yeah, I think because it's based on the chasse of uh, Stormbringer, it is too concerned with geography. Mm. And uh, really, despite what we've been saying about um, the imagery and the visualisation of the place, actually um, nailing down the geography of uh, Coram's world is the least interesting part of it. Agreed. Um, so it, I think it's because of the legacy of uh, Stormbringer that it brings that into it. So there's quite a lot of that. And, I, you know, I, uh, I find it difficult to be inspired by it, even though there's a lot of uh, dense text and detail. It doesn't really... It doesn't really help me as a games master think about what kind of adventures you would set in a quorum world um, because it, I must admit that it does stump me. Um, I have had an attempt um, to create that and uh, I had to cancel the game because we uh, we weren't quorum for <laughs> a quorum, uh, so we didn't have enough players, so I, I owe people a game. Um, but I did have I had I did have difficulty coming up with and it ended up being an encounter with the, the idea I've got an encounter with uh, one of the lesser uh, nobles of chaos. Um, but there's nothing in here really that will help you think of you know how do you get that sense of the different relationships between the Vadra and the uh, uh, the Nadra and how do you bring that into it. In interesting ways that players can engage with, it's a, it, it. Although there's there's a lot of attractive things about the supplement, I think some of the interior illustrations are are good, um, where they use a tonal pencil, and they are quite effective. Yeah. But I just I just think some of the the writing is fairly pedestrian and difficult to find something to hook into. I wonder if it's a product of its time because um, around that time it, it was very much the fashion was to have everything player facing. You know, a lot of the World of Darkness stuff it doesn't really have. Uh, here's lots of ideas for running in this world. In in a lot of the supplements, it was all here's some new powers, here's some new factions, here's some places, and that was it. And and that's very much the sense I get here. I do like the um, uh, the 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 alternative sorcery but i mean it's on the other hand i i like it for what it is but it's not something i would even go into that much depth these days uh so i i i think i'm i'm with you the the focus 
is very strong on geography and that's kind of not really necessary because when you're writing a game you'll kind of you'll do a topological map and you'll say i'm gonna there are these places people are going to go to and things will happen between point a and point b and that's all that's necessary i guess the 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 biggest value of having a map is you can put it on the table and show it to the other players if that's what you want is something on the table but uh, but otherwise, um, yeah, I, I think you're right there. But I, I do like the interior art quite a lot. Um, it has a totally different tone when you compare it to Elric, which is you know Stormbringer Fifth Edition, uh, which I, I um, it's like contemporary of. So shame they never did more though, because uh, it would have been nice to have seen them other supplements in the in, in English language. And uh, I can't find the um, can't find the the Oriflam versions. Um, I'd love to have the Oriflam Hawkmoon, which um, there was a lot more of. Yeah, I I think uh, you've made the point, haven't you, Ralph? That the map seems uh, strangely inaccurate. To my mind, is it not an attempt to um, Im- impose the? A map of the Young Kingdoms, and just I, I think you're exactly right there. Repurpose it. That yeah. that that is uh, that is exactly right because you've got islands in the centre, and then you've got three or four land masses, um, and that that is very likely what they what they were doing. Um, yeah. And it's it's kind of uh, whereas the Young Kingdoms has an iconic feel to the map because I'm so familiar with it. This is just a map that's not particularly of much consequence to me so yeah um, well i promised to uh, run that game that i cancelled so you know I'm, i might be tempted to have another go but using storm hack ah well uh, bit of product placement there for well, you i appreciate i appreciate that <laughs> yes following uh grog me i uh, i'm pleased to say that i got some great feedback from the players so i'm going to try and update that shortly is there any any last points you want to make um that we can just weave in there no, I think uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground, haven't we? <laughs> it's been re- it's been really great. I mean, I sort of like talking about this one. It's uh, took me back so much. So it, it is good because it, it, as you've said all along, this is the one that really sets out its stall, isn't it? So yeah, it's been it has been good revisiting it, and uh, yeah, it's uh, so. a, look, a good good look as the uh, project continues. Appreciate what's it. what's next? Well, the next one on the list is going to be uh, Sailing to Utopia, which is a collection of short stories that include um, uh, Flux and the Ice Schooner and a couple of others that I can't remember. Um, They're notable for featuring, uh, for example, members of the Von Beck family, I think. So I'm I'm looking forward to reading those because those are really the ones I remember the least well. Yeah, Um, I look forward to that. In between... There's going to be a load of other content as well because if if the current rate is to go by, then of course it's going to be one of these every four months. I'm going to try not to leave it quite quite so late. <laughs> but uh, so to, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for being part of the episode. Thank you, Ralph. All thank right. you, Hi, listeners. Before I close the episode, I want to first of all thank my new patrons. So thanks to Becky Anderson, Kit Finn, John Hagen, Lee Barlow. Paul Drury and Tom McGranary. Your support really means a lot to me. Now, if you're interested in becoming a supporter, obviously 
the main reason for the Patreon is to support the podcast and the ongoing costs. But I'm also offering additional benefits for supporters in the form of something written every month. This month, it's The Last Days of Dora and Aquila, which is a a story game type role-playing game set in an alternative Renaissance city about the last days of a celebrated war hero, daughter of the Empire, but also notorious drunkard, rake, and general scoundrel Dorian Aquila as she fights her final duel with her nemesis. What will happen? Will she survive? Or will she perish? Who will she make amends with? So that's what I'm offering this month. And the following month there'll be something new as well. If that interests you, you can pledge at any level you get this content. In addition, there's a higher tier called The Shapers, who I'd like to involve a bit more in the future of the podcast, so I'll be soliciting their suggestions for episodes and also opening the floor to roundtable discussions with them. If this interests you, well, check out that tier as well. Otherwise, I appreciate you listening. And uh, wherever you get your podcast, it would be appreciated if you could like it and even write a review. That would help me out. The music for this podcast is, as always, by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com. Until next time, bye. Bye.